Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? I am super excited today as we have another great episode. But of course, first I want to thank my sponsor, US Wellness Meats. It turns out that what's good for animals and the planet is also good for you. They have some of the most tender and tasty meat, but it doesn't have all the excess fat of animals fed with grain and confinement. It's full of nutrients that only come from a fully grass-fed diet. Omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, and CLA. And free of all the pesticides, hormones, and antibiotics that are found in grain-fed beef. Some of my personal favorites are the wild Alaskan sockeye salmon filet or the beef French ribeye, 16 ounces. I know that... With my mom's birthday coming up soon, we're going to be stocking up on our U.S. Wellness Meats order, so you should as well. They literally have every special diet you could imagine and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly foods. Go to uswellnessmeats.com where you can find over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store, and they ship anywhere in the country for just $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most of their orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Use promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off your next order at uswellnessmeats.com. And also, another big thank you to Infinite CBD. Use promo code WTG10 and receive 10% off of your next order at infinitecbd.com. And my next guest today, she is a singer, she is a songwriter. She's had many EPs on all the biggest platforms in the world, she's toured all around the world. You may have seen her on Conan, you may have seen her on NPR's Music Tiny Desk concert. She is the absolutely greatly talented Margaret Glaspie. live. I'm here with Margaret Glaspie. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no problem. First, this is actually something I didn't tell you. You have the best birthday in the world. Oh my gosh. Really? Why? Because we have the same birthday. Oh my gosh. January 22nd. <laughs> Aquarius, that's crazy. I know. Because, I, I, you know, you go on Wikipedia, it's the first thing you see, and then oh I got I got gosh. extra excited. Wow. That's, that's actually really impressive. I don't think I've... Do I know anyone with the same exact birthday? I know one person. Who? my mom's best friend. Oh, wow. So we're running that, in good circles right we're, now. We're in great circles. Yeah, yeah. We're in good company. So want to get started. As I did in the previous episode, I asked uh, my previous guest, Malachi Weir, uh, a little story. And today we're going to do something kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal of starting the episode like this is to get to know my guest in a way that's maybe not known to, to the general public or on the internet. Mm. So there's something we don't know about you there's something that we can't know by just looking you up on online or on Mm -hmm. instagram Mm -hmm. i'd love to hear it 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's some really random specific things that are, um, I have an anaphylactic dairy allergy. <laughs> now, can I, what is an anaphylactic dairy allergy? Um, I mean, anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis is basically um, when you, you can go into anaphylactic shock, so all your airways close. So if I have any kind of dairy product, I'm at risk of dying. <laughs> That's a fun one. Have you, have you had any, well, I imagine... There have probably been a few scares. You know, it's so funny because I grew up um, not know. I knew that, you know, a lot of people would tell me, I think you're, I would say, I think I have this weird thing with like milk and cheese and everyone would say, I think you're probably just lactose intolerant. But I was like, yeah, it's not really like a stomach thing though. Like I feel like I have a lot of pressure like <laughs> in this area, like grabbing my throat. And for some reason, I never really connected the dots that maybe... Um, <laughs> I had like a true allergy, but I have these memories of um, having had um, milk in particular uh, where, you know, maybe 20 minutes later, all of a sudden I felt like I was going to choke. And then I just didn't know that anaphylaxis was really a thing. And so then I kind of went through life for a long time, not really understanding it. And literally only like two years ago, I'm 30 years old now, two years ago, I was on tour I got a smoothie. Um, I asked for vegan protein in it. And whey, whey is like the most raw protein you could have of, of milk. And so whey will like take me down. <laughs> um, so if you want to kill me, you just give me a cup of whey and I will die. <laughs> um, no one do that to me. That would be so dark. But uh, that is basically the... Um, the, what happened is I, I got a smoothie. I asked for vegan protein. The lady messed up. She put in whey protein in my smoothie and I had the worst reaction I've ever had in my life. And I actually had to do a radio show that night in Chicago. And so I was um, in a car driving in downtown Chicago traffic and all of a sudden my throat just starts closing like minute by minute. It just keeps getting like you know, smaller and smaller and I'm like gasping for air and uh, I show up in front of like the CBS building or whatever and my radio guy comes out and he's like, all right, let's load in. <laughs> I'm like, I can't breathe <laughs> like the whole time. And he ran into his CVS and got a Benadryl and gave it to me and it opened up, the antihistamines like open up my throat. Um, it's not a pretty thing. And then we called... Uh, my doctor and he's like, yeah, you have, you definitely have an anaphylactic dairy allergy. And I went and got an allergy test done where they, I don't know if you ever had that when they prick your oh, arm like 40 times with all it. the allergen, allergens. And if one of them, you know, lights up, then you're allergic to it. And lo and behold, the dairy, you know, one lit up like a Christmas tree. So I cannot have any dairy. Wow. That's, that's my weird fact. I don't think anybody does know that. Yeah, I don't think anyone does either. That's a secret one for sure. I mean, I eat a lot of vegan food, so, and that's because I like to not eat too much meat and also because no dairy. <laughs> sure. So talking a little bit, I mean, here you mentioned about being on tour. Um, mm -hmm. What is, is, the, is the tour life for you part of your favorite aspect of being a musician, songwriter? Um, or do you kind of rather play more locally, stay in Brooklyn? I love being in Brooklyn. I mean, I love Brooklyn with all my heart. I really love living here. Um, I love performing a lot. I think performing is incredible. Touring is intense. It's a really intense lifestyle for sure. Um, you don't 
have any sleep. You're always away from everyone and um, it's grueling. And sometimes that can be really inspiring because you're just hustling constantly and you're never, you know, you go from being in the States to being in Europe to being in Asia to being in Australia to go back to the States. It's like really intense. And that can be kind of a thrill sometimes. But when you when you're doing that all the time for a really long time. Um, and, and, you know, for me, I did my last record, my first record and my last record was, um, I did like about two ish years touring that straight for, um, really solid. And, and I was exhausted after that. Some people have been doing it all their lives, you know? So, um, I think that it suits me in a way. And, you know, on the other side, I really love cooking, being at home, having plants and creating routine. Um, so sometimes when you're on tour, it's like you can really create a routine because your your whole day, I mean, your whole month, your whole next six months are all scheduled constantly. Um, so sometimes that can be comforting. And then when you get home, you're like, fuck, you know, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with my life? Uh, because it is really... It's, it's very open-ended. I, I, I could liken it almost to being like you're in college for a long time and then you're just not in college anymore. And then you're like, what do I do with myself? Um, that's kind of like what coming home from tour is can be like. Now, my partner, um, Julian, he's also a touring musician. And so there is a nice rhythm to that where we're just really used to it and we understand it. So that's comforting and doesn't make it feel as bizarre. Um, but I, don't, I think if he wasn't, it would be really jarring all the time. So I love performing, touring. I can take or leave at different points for sure. Do you have any tours planned or do you want to go touring soon again? Um, I think I'm like almost there. I, I've been off for a long time. Uh, I used to kind of, you know, toured pretty lightly all year. And then I just made a new record. So I'm really, really excited about that. And that makes me excited to play the new songs. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm like almost ready. Again, I, I really like cooking. So <laughs> it's hard to go to like take out in <laughs> the green room constantly when you can make really, you got like provisions grocery store down the street and you make really great food at home. So that's a big con for me with touring, but, um, but also you're, you're in all these exotic, beautiful places with great food. So there's, you know, I think I'm ready. I'm almost there for sure. Which was your favorite place on your last tour that you went to? Um, China was really interesting. Australia was really great because we, you know, you go in the winter and it's summer there and you can get out of the, like the East coast weather, you know? Um, so that was really nice. Uh, and it kind of just feels like, you know, it's really warm and there's a nice, a nice rhythm to Australia, especially in Melbourne and, um, being able to be on the beach in Sydney. It's really cool. Do you have a singular moment on stage that stands out? from that tour? Um, from that tour, I mean, that that tour was really great and it was really fun and kind of bizarre to be across the world and um, I just have people there that know your music. It was really, uh, it just felt like kind of like an alternate universe. Um, and Australia can also be a little bit of a trip because you're so far away, but yet it feels um, doesn't feel super foreign. It feels like I'm kind of like in LA, but 
you know, I wouldn't liken Australia completely to LA, but there is something that feels similar to being on the West Coast in Australia. So that's also kind of trippy. Probably the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me, like, or the thing that stands out the most was not, was when we were in London um, and we were, we were, we were playing a show in London um, and Trump had just gotten elected. It was the day that he had gotten elected. We woke up and it had happened like in the night. And I remember my tour manager woke me up and said like, he won. And that's what I woke up to. I was like, oh my God, this is so messed up. And so uh, we went to the gig. It was totally silent in the car. Everybody was really pissed off and, you know, feeling it and very emotional. We went to the show, kind of everything went wrong. It, you know, the like amps were dying and the back line was wrong and all this silly stuff kept happening. And then... I was playing the show and at the very end of the show, I was playing an encore and I was playing a song by Neil Young and um, I looked down and there was a girl that appeared to be naked in the state, uh, in the audience. And um, I was just, and it's, you know, it was probably like 700 people or something like that in this big, really cavernous spot um, called the Village Underground in, in London. And... Um, really quiet and there's like an energy to having a lot of people in a room and have it be really quiet you know a kind of you can hear a pin drop kind of vibe and there's this girl that doesn't I couldn't tell is she naked completely or does she just topless or like what's the deal and so I I was playing and I'm just going through my head of like what's about to happen <laughs> I wonder what this is going to turn into and um there was a security guard, this really big guy, comes and tries to extract her. But she's, it turns out she's just topless, but nothing on, you know, from the waist up. But there's this big guy that's trying to grab her by the arms and you can't do that. You know, she doesn't have any clothes on. You can't touch her because it's very uncomfortable, obviously. So she starts screaming at me, <laughs> you know, telling telling the audience that, like Margaret was going to stand up for me and, and women's rights. And it was a really interesting moment because it was like I was kind of implicated into something that was very, um, uh, I just didn't even, wasn't even really aware of and it wasn't my problem in a way. Um, but at the same time, she's in the audience of my show and, you know, how do I handle this situation? So... Uh, and everyone starts yelling at her because they don't see that the situation, they just think that she's like, you know, being noisy for no reason. Um, and who knows why she was topless? Like that's, yeah, wait, I was going to ask, that's how the first did the, question. She, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, some some people were saying that she was not drunk at all. Other people were saying she was like totally gone. Um, but basically... I just, I stopped at one point I had to stop because she was screaming like Margaret, Margaret, like screaming in the middle of this massive place. And I just said, um, I looked to the security guard and just said, are we cool? Is this okay? And like, can, are you ha handling this or what's the deal? And he just was like, I don't know what to do. Um, and everyone around her was just like, leave her alone. She just doesn't have a shirt on. Like no one cares really, you know, she's not doing anything to anyone. She just doesn't have her clothes on. <laughs> So they left her alone and she was she she was crying um quite a bit and was emotional 
and uh, I kind of looked at, I said into the microphone kind of subconsciously and just said, it's okay, we're going to, it's okay, you're going to be okay. And it was so metaphorical because like Trump had just gotten elected. they just gone through all the whole Brexit thing. And I'm saying thing. I'm like, it's okay, we're going to be okay. Everyone started clapping and they, I don't think anybody really knew why. <laughs> it was a weird, very bizarre um, moment for sure. This is a room with how many people? It's probably like 700 people, something like that. So how do you, I guess even before you go on stage and then sometimes, you know, on stage dealing with problems, how does one continue to find their focus or you continue to find your focus and, you know, whether it's Trump's election, whether it's a lady in the in the crowd that's shirtless or if it's maybe you're just having a really bad day or there's yeah. a problem at home, how do you kind of, tune in and get into that mindset for every performance? I think that as a performer, you're kind of relied on to be, to call the shots in a pretty big way and that you can't really let situations overcome you. Um, so it it's weird when it all of a sudden you have so much responsibility because obviously you have an innate responsibility to just perform well, you know, be a musician, write great songs, render them well, move people, hearts and minds and all these beautiful things. But also things do get weird all the time where there's a fight or someone passes out or someone's naked or, or you know, security gets weird or something, you know, there's a lot of different things that can happen within a venue that can be very unsettling. Um, and so... I think that you just, I try and keep my cap on as much to be a role model in some way because the way that you are handling a situation, it shows a lot about you, but also you have a lot of people that are looking to you for how you handle things in a, in a kind of a weird subconscious way. I felt that way at least. Um, in those situations often, I think you have to um, kind of demand respect in a certain way and also treat people respectfully and, um, you know, don't be flighty in a certain way. It's like, there's a lot of things that could kind of catch you up. People talking constantly, um, people shouting random things at you that are just like, you know, you spend all your time writing these songs or I know I do, I, I become very invested in it. And then, you know, you're on stage and someone's like, cool pants. <laughs> and you're like, oh man, it's kind of a bummer to me at times. But no one knows that. No one really cares either. And that's okay. There's a certain amount. You have to be aware that people are here to have a good time or people are here to just kind of get what they need. And so you're part of that in a certain way. So that's, it's something that I ask myself a lot actually is like, what's my responsibility here? And how do I do it the best that I can. I think it's it, it's always changing. Someone that I look up to a lot in that role is actually Jeff Tweedy. I think Jeff Tweedy, um, lead singer and you know songwriter Wilco. He's um, I toured with them for a while, and he's incredible. I just he just demands you know the audience, and also he demands of them their attention, but also he's able to command them with a, a sense of you know who's the boss in the room. <laughs> He's calling the shots in a way that feels um, really great. And it's not always aggressive. It can be very gentle and really, really heartwarming. Um, but you, you never have really a doubt of kind of who's in charge, which is, I think is a feat for sure. Do you feel that in a band, more often than not, the lead singer is kind of 
the one that's more, as you kind of say, in charge? Uh, I think that there's different, you know, I think there's different examples. I think I think that that's often how it comes off. People think that kind of the person that sings is the voice box of the band often. I know a lot of bands that I know are good friends of mine and, you know, sometimes the bass player is really the whole engine behind the whole thing or the drummer is really the whole engine, but the singer often is rendered as the the kind of front person that takes a lot of the attention, I suppose, in a certain way. Do you have any weird superstitions or rituals that you do before you go on stage? Um, not really. I, I think I think I like the most is just consistency. I think that's my ritual. I like to more and more, I guess. I think I used to just kind of jump on stage and let a rip, like figure it out. And now I like to warm up. I like to, um, for a little while, I would, I would burn a lot of like Palo Santo and stuff because you'd be in a different place every day and you kind of wanted your own vibe in there and not to have it just feel like this is a place with you know, millions of bands just running through constantly. Um, but outside of that, I, I don't have a whole lot of superstitions. I, sometimes there are just, there is just a vibe where you kind of come into a venue and you kind of know a little bit, like this is going to go well or not. <laughs> and sometimes the t- I totally call it wrong, but there are times where you kind of walk in and you're like, I'm feeling it tonight. This is going to be good. And some days you're like, ah, I don't know why, but this is going to crash and burn big time. <laughs> and sometimes that gets proven wrong and sometimes you're spot on and it totally does crash and burn. But that's that. Will you articulate what it's like to be on stage for in front of hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people for someone who's never been on stage before, who doesn't know what it's like or that feeling that you get when you're performing? Yeah, I mean, I think... I struggled with that for a little while of understanding how do you feel, um, why should I, Margaret, the person that's in the room right now in front of you, be, on, be in front of that many people? It doesn't, doesn't actually make sense. Um, and unless you kind of have an understanding that you're a performer, it won't really make sense. <laughs> but if you go on as yourself, like the person that, you know, has hobbies and likes to cook and all this stuff, I get very anxious for sure. Um, and I think that the more and more I perform, the more I realize that it's good to have kind of a deal with yourself that you're, you're going to be going on as, you know, the person that people expect in a certain way. Not, a, not, not that they expect, but you are kind of a persona of yourself a little bit. And I think that it's kind of healthy to have a tiny bit of a buffer between that zone and your personal life just because personally for me because I if I get on stage as myself that goes home and you know waters the plants or whatever then um, I get angry a lot quicker because you don't that exchange people yelling at you or people cheering for you or something it almost can feel offensive because you are um, or at least to me, it can, <laughs> because you are yourself. You don't really understand why someone. Why would someone, thousands of people, while you're on stage, go yeah? You know, <laughs> it feels weird. 
I've never experienced it, so I, I couldn't tell you, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's uplifting in a really big way if you're ready for it and you're excited for it. And if you go on as someone that's thinking about your personal life or thinking about all the things that you have to do that day, et cetera, at times I've gotten taken off guard by it and freaked out a little bit. Not not outwardly, but inwardly. I'm not having fun at certain junctures. Overall, I think the more and more I work on that and perform and understand that this is the deal. I go on stage and I put on a performance and that can be incredibly personal even while you have a slight kind of persona that you... And honestly, it's like, I think that some people have a very large persona, you know, that um, they've created Lady Gaga or something like that, where you have a different name and you you actually have characters. And to me, it's literally just, you know, I put my shoes on and put my boots on or whatever. I'm like, okay, now I'm doing it. It's not really that large uh, of a shift, but I have to know that it's happening. Otherwise, I find it pretty uncomfortable to be surrounded by so many people because I'd rather be alone at times. That's how, that's that's my personal experience with it. With other people that come on stage, I think it affects people in really different ways. You know, I think that some people eat it up and they're just they're, they're loving it, and other people are like, "This is my hell. I would rather die than, than be up here any longer." Are there ever times that you feel like what you're doing is or you're not enjoying it as much, and you feel like this this is work rather than pleasure? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's times that you're just on the road a little too long. Or if I've just, you know, the music's not good enough. That's how it feels. It feels like a grind. Um, and that's that's always, like, your reminder. If it starts to feel like a grind, something's not right. You got to figure it out and, like, work at it a little bit more and not kind of go on autopilot. Anytime I feel myself kind of going on autopilot, it means I need to practice or write some more songs or warm up more, you know, interact with the band that I'm playing with more. Um, because once it starts to be a drag and you look at the time ahead of you and you go, oh, I have five weeks more of this, you can kind of spiral a little bit where you're like, well, now I'm stuck here and I don't like it. But you have to just turn around and say, well, I'm going to actually proactively make this great because I have this incredible opportunity to play music for a living. It's, it's amazing. Um, but it can turn on you in ways that you don't expect sometimes. And they're al- it's always, it's never failed me that I realize it's a mi- reminder to just um, try and get better. Because if I don't, then I, I just, I'm, I get bored. How do you, how, for you, get better? What is your, what is your writing process like? And, and what, how do you get to that point where maybe you're writing or you're singing where you feel like, okay, f- fine, like this is this is where I want to be? Or do you have a moment where you're like, this is perfect? This is done? Do you have a kind of perfectionist trait in you? Mm. I think that there are... Um, well, I do things... I've gotten more adamant about learning just you know, taking lessons from people that I admire. And, um, you know, I take voice lessons now um, and it totally kicks my butt on a daily basis to be a better singer. And I'll never, I'll never achieve what I want, I think. Um, I'm not sure that anybody can, you know, 
make it. <laughs> I'm not convinced, at least. I think that there's always something. Otherwise, I'm kind of screwed, you know. I think if there's some point at which you kind of plateau, then I feel like I'm kind of a little bit uninterested. Um, so I think that for me, yeah, maybe, I don't know if I would call it perfectionist, but I definitely think that um, Julian, yeah, my boyfriend calls me a completist. <laughs> it's not perfectionist. It's like you have to complete it. <laughs> you have to come around. It's been, a, I think, maybe a theme in my life that it, it, you have to, you know, I want a sandwich. Well, in order to get a sandwich, I have to bake the bread, grow the garden, make the homemade mustard, <laughs> whatever, all the way so I can just have a sandwich. That's often how I think I approach things for better or worse. And so um, when it comes to music, it, it's endless because it's like, oh, I want to write a song. Well, in order to write a song and perform it well, you have to be great at the guitar if that's your instrument you have to be um, an impeccable singer an impeccable writer a great performer and that's a lot to be good at um, whereas some people are just trying to do one thing and to me it's like if you're trying to be a singer songwriter performer your work is it's never going to be done um, which I think is why it's fun in a way is because you always have these ways to learn um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe completist is a better term. Completist. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, kind of take me back earlier on when you were, so you grew up in, in California. Yeah. And at what point did you, do you remember the first time you sang or or even got into singing or even contemplated, oh, maybe I could do this one day? Um, I think it was kind of gradual, but I was surrounded by so much music when I was young. Um all, you know, I grew up just surrounded by guitars. My mom can sing and play guitar. Um, and she plays some fiddle. I grew up as a fiddle player when I was young. So I was, gosh, how old was I? I was in the third grade. I did that till I was about 16, 16 or 17. Um, I played Texas style competitive fiddle. <laughs> My dad plays wait, guitar wait, and is, sings. <laughs> were you going to Texas style competitive fiddle? There's a, um, there's a, there was a, program at my school for fiddle a fiddling program and then from there um it kind of segued into there was also a fiddle competition in my hometown I grew up in rural <laughs> northern California and then and then it's a thing and there's a lot of fiddle competition uh, competitions all over um and there's a very specific type of fiddling called Texas style fiddling. And I was kind of mentored by these incredible people, um, Tristan and Tashina Claridge, um, brother and sister that are amazing musicians that kind of took me under their wing and taught me the ropes in that world. Um, and that was my entryway into the music scene. And then, um, long story, very short is through that. I kind of started to learn how to play guitar because you back up other fiddle players on the guitar from there, I took the guitar and kind of took it out of the fiddle context, started singing with the guitar, and then dropped the fiddle completely and just started singing and songwriting. And then you went to Berkeley? I was at Berkeley for a semester. Oh, really? Yeah, I was there for super short. And hmm. then, I, But I stayed in Boston for three years. So what happened for that semester? And then why? what prompted you to not? Um, well, I had such a crazy community in Boston that was really... Um, there was a really, really incredible music scene there at the time of uh, just super talented musicians that weren't in music school that were, 
either a little just out of college range or um, were young and just playing music and not going to school. And then I had a huge contingent of friends that were in Berkeley that I had made once I was there. So I had a scholarship um, and uh, from this the foundation called Young Arts that actually everyone, anybody who's young should, um, you know, if you're sophomore, junior in high school, you should apply for Young Arts because it's an incredible foundation. They're massive now. Um, they're a little bit smaller when I did it, but they're really, really taken over like the world now. So they helped me and then I got some scholarship from Berkeley. And then basically it was like either take on massive debt in order to go to school to be a musician, which felt ironic, or just figure it out on your own. So I just decided to figure it out on my own and I moved into a house with a bunch of incredible musicians and was really just got caught up in that in a really cool way where I learned quite a bit. Um, but it did, you know kind of kicked my ass in a big way because I just had to figure it out. Was your family supportive in your music career? Yeah, super. My my mom and dad are very, very supportive. And, um, you know, I remember kind of the conversation with my, I think it was with my dad maybe first. I can't remember. It was either with my, my mom or dad. But I remember talking to them and being like, I think I'm going to quit college. Which <laughs> is never like a popular topic. But I think they understood because they knew how expensive it was too. <laughs> um, and I talked to, I remember talking to both of them kind of long and hard about it. Like, I think that this is the right move and I, I don't regret it. I mean, I think now since I left college early, I'm inspired to learn so much more because I didn't get it in one lump sum. And so I reach out to people, um, you know, pretty frequently to get lessons because I think it's interesting still. I don't, I don't, I'm such a amateur, you know, in a lot of big ways. And so it's nice. I feel like my whole life feels like my education, which I think is, um, I kind of cherish that because I didn't get it in four years. It feels like it's kind of really spread out over many years. So how old are you when you dropped, dropped out? I was, I think I was 18 years old. Wow. I just, maybe I was 19, maybe I was 19, but I had just turned 18 when I went to, um, music school and then semester in, so like four months in or whatever, like right at the end, the middle, I pulled out. And then what did you do right I then? Worked, I-, I worked jobs and, and just wrote songs and this club, incredible um, folk music spot in Harvard Square called Club Passim. They, um, shout out to Matt Smith, they really uh, took me under their wing and let me play all the time and get, let me open for everybody. And they had these little festivals and I would play them all the time. And um, I kind of really learned how to be on stage there for the first time and uh, played some really, you know, bad music. for. And I'm, I'm glad that I could get to do that because now it feels like, you know, once you kind of get it going, it feels the stakes are like a little more intense and... I really cherished the time I had in Boston, especially at that club, because they were so open and just would let me experiment all the time. And sometimes it was great, and sometimes I, I'm sure I sounded like a doof. I was watching an interview with you the other day, and I think you were talking something similar about how you worked a bunch of these small jobs, um, and then you would go home to write music. Did you ever have any doubts, or were there any ever some moments where you're like, this, this is just not... This is not happening. 
I don't think, I think that I was so surrounded by, I definitely had low moments of just being bummed that I, that I didn't have as much work that I wanted, but I didn't think that it was never going to happen for me. I, I still don't think like, I think it's such a, it's such a, um, point of view. Like if you're, if it just depends on what success is for you, I suppose. Like, I think I, I feel very, very lucky and really excited to be able to play music for a living. And also my successes are different than other people. Um, sometimes people could say that that was a success. You're done. You made it, you know? And to me, uh, that still, it, it feels like that that's way far off. Um, so it still feels like I'm hustling, you know? Um, in the best way where I just feel inspired. I missed the time a little bit even when I was working full time during the day and playing at night because you really, that sense of hustle is different when you are kind of, when you're scrappy like that. Um, and I, I want to stay scrappy for sure. So I feel inspired to, to do as much as I can and, um, not assume that anything is a given. I think that it's all, you know, I don't know. I don't think that anything is mine or anything is, you know, I'm supposed to get anything um, too much. I mean, there are certain things where you kind of grow up and you say, yeah, this is where I'm at and it's great. Um, And I'm excited to be, you know, doing what I'm doing. But I I like to know that it's not a given. I got to work for it. So do you still, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but do you still feel like you just haven't made it? Do you feel is there is there is there a point like I think it, honestly I think it's a great kind of mentality because I think it's important to be satisfied, but especially with someone like yourself who you know there's a lot you know a lot of people are listening to your music and and you're doing very well, but I think it's always great to see somebody who who wants more and I'm just wondering like you know you I think you the answer would if I had to answer it. The question that I just asked for you, of based on what you're what you're saying, is that it does seem like maybe you feel like you haven't made it. But do you think that's a for you? Do you think that's a healthy mindset? I think that it's just really depends. It really. De- I think it's like a tricky thing to say. Like made it a little bit. Yeah. Like what does that? Even what does mean? it mean? I don't. I don't really buy into it. But um, to me, in so many ways, yes, of course, I feel very. Um, grateful that people like to listen to my music. I feel very grateful that people show up and then I can make my living that way. That's incredible. There's no doubt about that. And I feel that's great. That's the work that you do and that's what you work for. And there's totally a sense of satisfaction of going like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, I, whatever, a few years ago or five years ago, whatever it was, that wasn't the case. And now it is. And that's, it's come a long way, which is great. And that alone Maybe this is, I mean, you could call it cocky. You could call it just, I don't know what you could call it. But to me, I was never doing anything different, really. People were able to be, you know, there were things put in place where, you know, I have a record label and there was, you know, a great manager and a great publicist or whatever. And those people are able to shine a light on someone that's doing something interesting. But there's so many people that are doing interesting things that don't have the light shining on them that if they did, you know, I'm certain that people would flock. 
And so to me, it's like I was always writing songs in my bedroom and doing that for a long time. I was always playing at Pete's Candy Store and Rockwood Music Hall and all these spots. And it just so happened to be that someone was able to catch light of it and support me in doing it. And I was able to create a career out of that, whatever career means. But that's, I think, why the whole made it concept is kind of like, well, if that's talking as like a commercial success, like I pay my bills and I'm happy and I'm that that's incredible. But in terms of, you know, musical inspiration, that goes on forever and I've never really plateaued. So I think it's it's tricky. I think that's actually a really good point because I was going to ask you that. My, I have a cousin. His name is Aryan. Shout out Aryan. And he's also a young, aspiring musician. And he, he and I, I was in California this past year. And I would see him and he's doing great work. He has great songs on Spotify. He's on all the, like, the big platforms. But I keep telling him, you could be doing great work. But I think right now the most important is getting it out there. And I think you kind of touch on it is, you know, you've been doing the same work. It's just that now you're managed by a good label and the right people were were watching you and, and promoting you. So how important do you think that is as for young aspiring artists? Because there's so many people, there's so many people who want to be musicians and there's so many people who will not get that attention because they're not being promoted the right way. Mm-hmm. How important do you think that is? I think, well, I've started to do, it's interesting. I've, in, this, in these last month or so, I've started to teach. Um, and I've started to teach young songwriters, um, you know, and kind of guide them in the, in the ways of the, you know, just the whole process. And it's a really popular topic in terms of asking, like, what do you do? to get people to listen to your music. And I think that to me, there is so so much, especially today, good God, there's so much focus on being able to promote yourself. And there's so many ways in order to do it. It's confusing and it's very intense. I'm really glad that I don't have to interface with it on that level where I'm, you know, promoting myself constantly. Um, at the same time, to me, the only thing that got people to listen to my songs or catch word of it was because they were, I, I worked on them and they were good. Um, that's what attracted people to come to the show in the first place. And then I was consistent about it. I went, you know, I, I played at the same club for a long time and had residencies every week at Pete's Candy Store or whatever for like five months over the summer where they gave me like the Tuesday night, five o'clock PM slot with like no sound person. <laughs> like these things that are kind of a little rough sometimes, but people knew where to find me, you know? So if someone was like, that was a really great song. Wow. I should tell my buddy about whatever. And then, it, you know, let that collect over a while. And then one person from a record label gets the light of it. And then they are able to come out to the tiny show that I play. And then they go, oh, we should just we just set this up. This is great. What caught them was not me like posting on Instagram or something like that. It, and I think that that, I, I think that I, I always, my advice is always just work on what you're doing and make it bulletproof and make it really great. Obviously 
not everything that I do is bulletproof, far from. But I think that there is a certain sense of self that you can create and a certain amount of even independence to say that what I do is great, you know. And I think that I'm able to, you know, once you're able to see that whether someone else likes it or not, I'm excited about it. There's a certain amount of, um, I don't know, maybe, I think the word it might be independence, but, you know, you're not really bothered as much about how many people are in the room, but instead you're more fascinated about how the songs are going or how your performance was. I think that's a healthier place to be in than thinking about who's there. And you can't help but do it sometimes. It's just life and you're human and you're worried about so-and-so and what they think of it or whatever. But before you think, you know, two seconds about how you're going to promote it, think about what, what it is and how does it sound and what are you even promoting, you know? Because I think that is, um, that's key. I don't care about how you promote your music. I mean, I don't care about like what it looks like on Instagram or what it looks like on, you know, what your photos look like or what you wear. Like if you look really cool and your songs suck, I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that um, to get the priorities straight, it feels like honestly to me the magnet for people loving it in a lot of ways. And there's totally these really intense anomalies of like, these people that become massively famous and kind of get entered into the machine or whatever. But my interest lies in that kind that real process, craft work kind of consistency thing that creates, you know, um, a sense of learning and a sense of like actual creation that people are working on and fascinated by. And I feel that in the artists that I love all the time. Don't you also see, I agree with what you're saying, but I do. I think first of all, it's not as you said. It's not just about promoting on Instagram. I think people need to first focus on the work, and then I'm a firm believer that if you put the time and the work and the necessary energy to make a good product, the results will come with it. But I do think at the same time there have been a lot of people that I've listened to really well produced songs phenomenal lyrics, things that if you put somebody else's name on it, if you put a Lana Del Rey on it, if you put a Lady Gaga, it could maybe pass. And it could it could do really well. And I think that it is, or I mean, you probably know better than I do, but the the process of getting your work in the right hands, I think is probably really important. And I and I'm kind of wondering for you. I mean, you're you're with ATO Records right now. Mm-hmm. How did you? How did that relationship come about? And at what point, you know, for for a young artist who who has the who has good work, maybe it's not great, but it's good, and they're in talks with uh, a record label. How do you find the right connection in getting your work to the right people? Um, it's so different for everyone. In my case, it really was the. The process that I'm talking about in just playing, constantly playing um, shows all the time and being able to um, be found and, you know, let people know where you are playing on that very base level, like of promotion of just saying, I'm playing here. <laughs> um, you know, you text like, I remember I would text like all my friends. You'd be like all your contacts <laughs> and text all 
I'm playing at so-and-so's whatever on Thursday. And so like whatever, like 792 people would get this text message and they'd all like a bunch of them would come back like they didn't send because the person doesn't have the phone anymore or whatever um that's old school but I think uh I think that they're um yeah I think honestly everyone's interaction with this is very different people get discovered in very different ways um I think that truly and it's just not glamorous. It's not like a sexy explanation. But I think that when you do have something that's resonating with people, that the people that are that it's supposed to be in the right hands of, they kind of get it. You know, it it finds its way to the right hands often. If there was something to say to that, I think people often don't kind of that also feels maybe like less sexy or less glamorous for young musicians is that often people think, gosh, I've got this song. I need to get into the hands of, you know, the best producer in the world. I need, I got to go to LA and I have to get into the hands of like the guy that did Lady Gaga's record or like Miley Cyrus's record or something like that. So this like pie in the sky kind of grass is greener notion that someone else is going to be able to really do this well. And sometimes it's very true, but I've noticed lately, and I've even noticed for myself, is that I've, I, I've done that before. I've been in those shoes and kind of ventured to places that I felt uncomfortable or even felt like slightly unwanted and done it anyway <laughs> because I thought this is really what's going to be really cool. You know, These people have the answers for me. You have the answers for yourself usually. <laughs> and also your community, there's, there's people around you that are not so far off that can help you and have the answers or the person that, you know, that's whatever, five, 10 years older, that's a great guitar player. You're like, God, I wonder if he would play my record. or I wonder if he would teach me how he did that thing. But you're like, no, instead I need to go talk to the best guitar player in the world. It's like, no, just go in your community. And that's also how cool things happen. You know, that's how cool, you know, underground shit happens or that's how, things get bolstered in a way or that's how cool like smaller smaller towns with really cool music scenes you're like how did that happen and it's because they looked to the people around them and said oh you can play the drums and you can play the whatever let's start a band oh now the band now record likes our band and we're in like bumfuck wisconsin or something that's you know no one thinks of those things sometimes but it's like it's happening all the time um and i i kind of wish that people would kind of look that way more and it, I think it's really exciting when people do like to me I feel more and more like a New York musician you know I want to work with New Yorkers I want to work in New York studios and I feel excited about that um, and obviously I have amazing friends in other places that I love to work with too <laughs> but there is a certain fun kind of pride to being at home and being able to make things with the people that are around you and um, and I think that when you do that it feeds, first of all, it feeds your own economy where you're supporting the stuff that happens around you. And so other people prosper from it that are going to want to support you back, which is a really good feeling. And I think a really good thing to reach out to the people that are actually close to you, because I think that people that are able to connect with their own communities, there's an energy to it that, um, is different than just reaching out to random strangers because you have a notion that they might 
be able to make your song all of a sudden turn into gold. <laughs> um, and I think there's in between too. You can also not know some people sometimes and, you know, have some kind of link a little bit and say, this is a shot in the dark, but, you know, do you want to work on something together? Overall, basically, I think a really good thing that young musicians can do is reach out to the people that are actually around them. Um, and and you can reach out to the people you actually love too. Who knows, you know? Um, there are some really generous, cool people in the music scene that, um, you know, are willing to say, oh yeah, do keep doing what you're doing, you know, to a young person. And um, I just feel that to connect to the people that are around you is really great. To connect to your actual community is really great. And to think that there could be something there that is not so far away as, you know, um, wherever you might be, even if you're living in LA, there's still other people other than the people that are making constant, you know, top 40 records or whatever that are incredible musicians, incredible producers um, that I think, you know, should be asked to work with more. Um, so I don't know, it's a roundabout answer, but that's that's what I feel that young musicians, I, I, I encourage you, if you're, if you're young and you're a musician. <laughs> if you're young and a musician, listen up. Then, or anybody, I mean myself, I'm talking to myself too. It's just, you know, look, look at your friends. What are your friends doing? Make, make stuff with your friends, you know? It's not, I think there's a really great energy to making stuff with people you love and not making things with people just because they're successful um, and saying, wow, I wonder what could happen if I made something with my buddy so-and-so and he doesn't have any gold records, but who knows, maybe we're the next people to make something really unique and interesting. And I'm excited about that kind of thing for sure. Is there one person that's had a particular influence on you as a musician, songwriter, or person? Definitely. Um, well, Elliot Smith was a really big influence of mine. Um, when I was writing my uh, last record, Emotions and Math, that was like, that was a, I listened to so much Elliot Smith that I could, I don't know, I just felt like he was in kind of my veins when I made that record. Um, so that was definitely really, really kind of influential to me. His guitar playing, the voicings, the lyric writing, all of it. Um, sometimes I'll say that and people are like, I don't hear it. <laughs> but, you know, who knows? I don't know how that kind of influences or gets into the music sometimes. But for me, that was a huge thing. I grew up around a lot of different kinds of music. My dad was really into jazz for sure. My mom into a lot of, you know, the singer-songwriters of, you know, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Cat Stevens, um, the kind of like Laurel Canyon vibe. Um, and there was a lot of, gosh, a lot of Ella Fitzgerald, a lot of Louis Armstrong, Michael Jackson. Um, a lot of, I was obsessed with Little Feet when I was young, which was so bizarre. Jay Giles band I was really obsessed with when I was young too. We just had a big, big stereo in the hallway and I just listened to music quite a bit. Um, and I think that that was uh, a big influence on me for sure. I can't remember what you asked me. There's one particular person, maybe, maybe so somebody many. that you, that you know personally that 
maybe you developed oh, a relationship through oh, music. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, totally. Um, well, there's, you know, a really, really close and dear friends of my um, boyfriend, Julian, Julian Lodge, guitar player, and I um, are Nels Klein and Yuka Honda, who are just, they're, they're very dear friends of, I, of ours and also people that we really genuinely look up to. Nels is the guitar player in Wilco, um, one of them, incredible guitar player, and also does his his own music, Nels Klein 4, and so many other projects that are incredible. Um, and Yuka is an incredible electronic musician, and she was in the band Chibamato and now has all of her own projects that she works on. And those people are kind of, you know, incredible musicians and and heroes of ours that we're very, very, very close with now and are some of our dearest friends. And that is an inspiring relationship for sure because you you feel um, such a genuine love on so many levels for um, a relationship like that because it's so the admiration is so deep creatively and also they're incredible people, which is just, that's that that X factor <laughs> for sure. And do you, are you constantly always thinking about your work and what the next song is and what, where do you draw your inspirations with regards to your, your songwriting? I think on some level, I'm probably thinking about it constantly. Um, I think I probably am thinking about it constantly. I think that there's, um, there's a process that I've kind of tapped into for songwriting uh, that feels more regimented, especially if I'm writing for a record. And that is really scheduled and, you know, about four hours a day, five days a week, and just show up constantly. Outside of that, it's like every musician gets inspired or every person gets gets inspired by different things that happen so for me you know I'm a human of course I ingest constant kind of thoughts and ideas about what is anything and then those kind of get prescribed into songs um yeah I'm hit with ideas and stuff all the time I don't think they really come from any certain place um other than just you know being in the world (laughs) it's hard being in the world it is (laughs) yeah so I think that's enough, you know. I think that's enough for anybody to make something out of. Um, and past that, it just, you know, then it just turns into kind of a logistical process of like you take your voice memos, you take the voice memos and you can't, that's like your personal archive. And then from there, if you're regimented about your process, even you're able to show up during that time of day and see what have I got here and put all the pieces together. Do you still feel nervous performing? Or did you ever, have you ever felt ner- like, was that a big part of you at one point? I imagine maybe the first times you got on stage, you're probably a little bit nervous. Yeah, I still get nervous. I still get, um, I don't know if it's even like nervous, but you have a certain amount of, or I have a certain amount of um, adrenaline for sure. And um, it really depends on the situation. When I'm sitting in with somebody, like a band asked me to like come sing a song or something like that. 
sometimes that can feel kind of nerve wracking because the stakes are so high. The band's been playing all night long and you got like one shot <laughs> to make sure it's great. That feels, that can feel a little nerve wracking, but um, yeah, I, I totally get like a little shaken up every time I go on. Do you still get starstruck or do you get starstruck? Because I saw, I was actually watching, I think it was last night, uh, when you went on Conan and uh, I also saw your, your NPR music tiny desk concert and those are you know for for artists of any sorts those are massive shows were you nervous doing those or are there any what's the excitement like do you feel are you excited to be promoted at those on those big stages to be or is that something that or do you like performing at local clubs more so um, I think it just it just really depends like what the vibe is if you feel if you're feeling you know, like you've been set up to win. It's like playing a gig is so interesting because you have all these factors that go into it, right? It's like you go play late night TV, you're there, you get there at like 7 a.m. <laughs> and you're there all day long for one song, wow. you know? It's like, it's kind of intense in that way where talk about like one shot. It's like you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then you play one song and you hope that you kill and that's that. Um, and they're... Yeah, it, it's super fun. There's a total adrenaline to it. That's great. Um, if it doesn't go well, it sucks, and that's that. But um, I think that any show, you know, you can walk into an incredible setup of, like, this is the most money you'll ever make, the best venue, and if, like, the crew are all assholes, it's just like, uh, this sucks, you know? <laughs> um, so it's it's weird. Like maybe you'll still make the money, but maybe the show will be really shitty because you just didn't feel like, you know, the odds the odds felt against you for whatever reason. It can be very it can tilt in different ways for sure. What was Conan like? See, did you get to talk to him a lot before? Yeah, we we, we hung a little bit. He's he's a real gem. That guy. He's like a real really. Um, you know, he's a real guitar lover and a guitar collector and a, and a player total musician and so um he he we nerded out on guitars and stuff for a little while after the show which was was nice just for a minute and uh yeah just the funniest i think that he's he's uh i admire conan i think he's an incredible incredible force in the late night scene and i like his style a lot i've always liked his style a lot have you listened to his podcast no you should oh it's very good i don't i don't remember what it's i th- think it's called something like let's be friends or something about being friends i listened to him and howard stern i don't know if you're a howard stern oh, fan. Wow. and that was quite <laughs> something but you also see as opposed to him on his late night show he's very sensible he's very you know i think i i can imagine i don't know but being a late night host you have to feel like you have to get into this persona but when you hear him kind of in a, in a podcast setting like this where you can you know be more relaxed you're not in front of a ton of people yeah he's super i mean he's super smart yeah he's brilliant everybody knows super electric but he's like super brain. you know he talks about dealing with depression and it's really i would highly recommend you listen if, you gotta check it out yeah i'm a conan fan i'll check it out um i was also wondering do you how do you think about from this point on? Do you kind of set goals for yourself? I've had I've had guests that 
don't even like to think about the future. They're just kind of like, what's tomorrow? And we're not going to look past tomorrow. I've, I've, had, I've talked to a lot of people that look 20, 30 years down the line and think already about what their legacy is going to be. Where do you stand in between those? Uh, I think, I think, hmm, I think it's interesting. I remember sitting down with um, Julian before I had, you know, been recognized by ATO and the whole kind of crew. And I, I remember he, he asked me that question of asking, what's like the next five years look like? What do you want to have done in the next, next time? And then I was able, finally I said, this is what I want to do. And it happened, which was incredible. Wow. And I never really, you know, after that he said, you're really good at making it happen, you know? Like I think that there is a power to saying, this is what I want and that's, you know, I'm going to try my best to articulate that. You don't always know how you're going to do it, obviously. But if you just say what you want, I think that does have, you know, there is something I think that you're putting out there. And I'm, I don't know if it's like, what's that whole thing about like Scarlet? What is that? There's like a, a movie about that. I can't remember what it's called. But there's, there is, you know, I think people can take it to an extreme where it's like you will it into the world and that's everything. You write it down every day. And I think more power to you, like whatever works. But to me, there's also just an action of owning up to what you want and just saying, yeah, I want to be a professional musician. I want to do that with my life. I want to be on tour this amount a year. I want to be, you know, I want to write songs for a living and be known for that. Um, and I... I feel like we keep finding ourselves at these junctures of like, huh, I'm like running out of things right now and I need an, I need a refresh on what I want in my life because I'm not articulating things very well. And when it kind of starts to get slightly blurry, it feels like, you know, whether it's like your three-year plan <laughs> or your five-year plan or even your plan, you know, whether you're like reverse engineering your success <laughs> or whatever... I think that past all that, just saying, I want to do this with my life, I want this, is, um, is I think, important. I think that that does something for yourself that just, you know, you're not invisible. You have to own up to the things that you want at times and just, you know, be a woman about it. Is there something that you can think of right now that you maybe haven't done that you want? So many things, yeah, definitely. What's the so many one things. That stands out. Um, for me, I've always wanted to have an education. I've I've never I didn't go to college. You know, I went to a semester of music school. <laughs> um, I've always studied quite a bit. I'm I'm a big reader, and uh, I studied I've studied languages and stuff like that, and um, had I've had an education for sure, and I self educate quite a bit. But I do crave to um, be educated in a different way that feels a little more intense. Um, I think my brain has been hungry for that for a long time. And so I find myself kind of at that juncture of how do I want to articulate that and how do I want to get that education and, you know, be on the road at the same time. Um, so I'm, I'm 
that's like in the works right now of me figuring out how, how exactly, what's my avenue for, you know, being educated. Do you think you're going to go back to school? Um, I think that, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about it too much cause I don't, I don't want to, it, it is slightly personal, you know, like on my venture, it's like one of the only things that's mine <laughs> in, in, you know, how I want to articulate it and how I want to do it. Um, but I have, yeah, I think I, I will at some point go back to school and, there's so many different ways you're able to do it now, which is amazing. And so many different ways for, especially people that travel so much to be able to do it. And I, I hope that I'd like to, you know, have my degree, but before I'm 35, that's, that's a, a goal of mine. Are there certain subjects that you feel you've always felt really passionate about that you wish you could have? Literature. Dove? I'm like, so I'm like, I'm a book nerd for sure. I like books quite a bit. Favorite um, book? Ah, oh man, this is a tough one. Um, all right, top I'm, three. I'm a big David Mitchell fan. I really like David Mitchell quite a bit. Um, so like Cloud Atlas was like a massive David Mitchell hit, kind of surrealist uh, stuff. Um, Do you relate to any of his characters? Uh, you know what I relate to is he takes these kind of mundane circumstances in a certain way. It'll be like a small town in... Uh, England that feels very suburban. Nothing much is going on there. The the family's experiencing some kind of trivial problems, and then some. And often it'll be you know a a teenager or maybe someone that's going through something as a young person will be experiencing life, and through that they'll create experience these really surreal um, circumstances. And that to me feels very real (laughs) because it feels surreal when you're, you know, 17 or something like that. You're like, you're going through this bizarre phase of life of like, what is anything? (laughs) And so it feels appropriate. Um, someone else who does that really well is Neil Gaiman. Um, and just, you know, uh, I just read the ocean at the end of the lane. I don't know if you've ever read any Neil Gaiman, but incredible science fiction writer. And he, uh, that book is, wildly good um i like marquez a lot i like gabriel garcia marquez quite a bit read quite a few of his books um yeah i don't know there's so so much there talking about the future do you are there any venues that you really want to perform at huh i don't know what's your what's your ideal venue yeah my ideal venue is not um doesn't have concrete floors, <laughs> isn't like a metal box, I suppose. That that feels like it can, I mean, uh, so many venues have concrete floors, but um, there's a thing that happens which is like a metal sounding venue that can feel so reflective that it just sounds like shit. Um, so yeah, I like it when venues can kind of absorb a little bit. You get that like more in kind of older theaters where things are made out of um, different materials that kind of just sound pretty and can kind of absorb in a different way and are built in a different way. Um, but I also love playing standing rooms, you know, where people can stand up and, and watch and not just sit down in like a, you know, cushy seat. So um, some mix of that, those two things, I guess. Do you have a favorite place that you always like to perform at that you try to go often? Oh, gosh. Um 
I hmm. I think that um well there's some really cool little spots in Brooklyn I think are really great. I just played at the Owl recently, which is um it's a little spot in Prospect Lefferts in Brooklyn that is um I mean the Owl probably seats very small amount of people, maybe like 50 people or something like that. It's really small. That place is great. Um and we have a friend that owns um a bar venue in Bedsty called Bar Lunatico. That place is really great. Um, they often have music there. I played there once, like right when it opened. Um, also very small. <laughs> I like those little kind of secret spots. Do you prefer a small, more intimate setting with like 50 people like you talked about or being in front of thousands? I, I like the energy. Like, you know, sometimes we play music that doesn't the seated vibe that's very quiet feels inappropriate for sure. Um, where it's like you kind of want to rage a little bit. I like that energy of being able to have people stand up and kind of um, have a night, you know. Um, when it's seated, I think it just has to be appropriate to where what I'm playing a little bit more. So if I'm playing solo or something or it just feels like a different context, and it's great. Sometimes when we play with my you know, the band I have been touring with for a little while in a seated show, it feels kind of inappropriate. You're kind of like, why is this so stuffy right now? We need to stand up and hang out. <laughs> is it ever weird to you that to think, or do you think this way, that you walk on stage and you have thousands of eyes just staring right at you? I guess that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about before. If, yeah, if you're not, if you're not, um, you're not in the mood for it sometimes it can strike you weird but as you get I think more more seasoned at it or better at it you realize that it's your job to be in the mood for it a little bit it's like that's kind of what you've signed up for if you get on stage and you're like why are all these people here it's kind of like well that's literally your job so you have to just figure that one out a little bit but of course you know it's not your job to fake it all the time either you have to be real on what you're going through or whatever Kind of to wrap things up, what do you hope? Now we're talking about like these short term three, five years, but as a musician and artist, how do you hope to be remembered? Gosh, heavy. Heavy. I know. I don't want to, it's not, you're young. You, you, we have time. Heavy. But I think it's, you I never know. A, yeah. I mean, nothing, no. nothing's well, given. Well, I'm going to die tomorrow. Knock, <laughs> knock on wood. Um, no, nothing is a given, and I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think I'd probably want to be known as uh, someone that moved people, um, you know, either on the dance floor or in a, you know, in an emotional sense, um, innovative in a way. I, you know, I, I think mostly just to have people moved and to think about you know, to leave them feeling a different way than they came in is, I think, my objective for sure. You can find all of Margaret's music on all the major platforms. Your latest, Born Yesterday, as well as Emotions and Math, literally everything. Yep. MargaretGlassby.com. You could also check that out on Instagram, Margaret underscore Glassby, on Twitter, M Glassby. And you have, as you mentioned, a new album. It's done. Or it's almost done. Almost done. Very, and that's going to be released when? Uh, probably sometime in the spring. And then from there you're going to 
tour. tour and yep. Beautiful. Hit the road. Stay posted. Margaret, thank you so much for, for being here. Me. Yeah, no problem.